It's a pleasure to, uh, as always, to have the opportunity to open the word to you, um, and I pray that uh, this word will be profitable to you. Um, just want to take advantage of this opportunity being up here, just ask you to pray about something. Um, especially since I've retired, I've always tried to be before the Lord, um, here are my Lord, send me. And he has sent me to some interesting places. Well, in God's providence, he's opened up the door for me to go to Okinawa in Japan and minister there, uh, in f- basically for about five weeks, um, through a mutual friend who connected me with a, there's a, there's an English-speaking Reformed church in Okinawa, uh, pastored by a young man from Brazil, interestingly enough. And um, I got connected through Daniel Jarstifer, who's in our presbytery, who knows this young man. He's a graduate of Greenville Seminary. And so we've been communicating over Zoom. Long story short, uh, end of January, uh, Lord willing, Pastor and I will be leaving. I'll be there preaching five Lord's Days, morning and evening, and um, hopefully coming back the first week of March. So uh, I would very much appreciate your prayers. And right now for the preparation, I made a list for myself of all the things I need to do before I go. And it's quite a list. (laughs) So you can pray about that. Uh, But lest you think I'm making a great sacrifice, um, I've been told that Okinawa is the Hawaii of Japan. So just so you know that, it should be not too bad of a place to live for a while. But I am praying that the ministry of the word would be a blessing and that the young pastor, Miguel, uh, would have a good break and um, be refreshed as he um, comes back to the States. I'd like to call your attention tonight to Isaiah chapter 42. Um, I've been reading through Isaiah probably since Thanksgiving, I suppose. And um, this little passage struck me, and I got chewing on it, and I thought I'd like to preach a sermon on it. And this is one of the servant songs. And um, I'm going to preach on the first four verses where the Lord... God speaks about his servant. Uh, It continues in the next verses where God speaks to his servant, but I thought, well, there's plenty in these four verses to um, preach on. So that's what we'll look at tonight. Uh, Isaiah 42, the first four verses. Hear the word of God. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for your servant, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, and for this wondrous description of him. May we, as the passage says, behold him tonight by faith, and as we walk by your providence into this new year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, as the Lord calls us to behold his servant, as Isaiah speaks this word, We know, we've read the end of the story, we know that he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the servant of the Lord. And this sermon will try to enable us to focus on the Lord's servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Behold. Whenever I see that word in the scriptures, I think it's significant. I think all the words in scripture are significant. But when, when the Lord says, Behold, he's saying, I want you to see this. I want you to pay attention. This is important. And I think the word behold is especially fitting for people in this age who are so easily distracted by our electronic devices and by who knows what else. People tell me, oh, studies have shown it's really hard for people to concentrate for 15 minutes or listen to a half-hour sermon or read an article. And that's tragic in my mind. And so we need to hear the Lord when he says, Behold, my servant. Peggy Noonan is a um, columnist, and I read her column just about every week. And I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but she has really good insights about culture and the nation and politics and all kinds of things. Well, she wrote recently, and she said that she finally got around to reading the great novel War and Peace by Tolstoy, which is something, I, I read it, I, I don't know if I ever understood it, but it was really a very thick very thick book. But she said she got absorbed by war and peace. And this is the quote that comes from what she said. She said, for the first time in years, I was freed from the compulsion to pick up a device and find out what was happening. And I thought, wow, if, if a serious person like Peggy Noonan is saying that, What's going on with the rest of us? You see, something that is compelling to us can liberate us from a lot of other compulsions that we have. She's saying, oh, I always had to be picking up my cell phone and finding out what was going on, but I was smitten with War and Peace. Well, War and Peace is a great book, but I have something greater to show you tonight to focus on, and that is the servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to present this text under three headings, if you'll follow along with me for a few minutes as we think about the servant. I want you to first to behold the servant's unique relationship with God. Second, then, I want you to see to behold the servant's work of justice. And then third, I want you to behold the servant's gentleness with broken people. So let us hear God's word then. First, Behold the servant's unique relationship with God. First of all, obviously, he is the Lord's servant. But I think we come at that word differently than biblical people would have read this. I think we would, would, would bristle a bit if somebody wanted to make us a servant. Or if somebody said, you're a servant. Or the, the implication is, you're nothing but a servant. When God calls his son his servant, he is giving him a great honor. This is a great title of dignity. What higher thing could someone do than serve the Lord God Almighty? This is a title of honor. Behold my servant, he says. Unless there be any doubt in our minds, this is applied directly to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This very passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 12, and you can go look at it at some point if you want. I'm not going to read the entire text now. But Matthew, in chapter 12, verse 17, says this about this passage. As he sees the Lord Jesus Christ living before him in the fullness of time, Matthew writes, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet 
Isaiah. So there's a direct line between this text, the servant of the Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. It's important to see, I think, that Matthew here is speaking of God's Son as the mediator, as the Messiah, servant of the Lord. If you think about the Trinity, from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no inferior or superior. There's no subordination. As our catechism says, all are equal in power and glory. However, the Son freely takes upon himself the role of mediator, the role of Messiah, the role of servant, and in that sense is subordinate to the Father's will and comes to obey the Father by saving all those that the Father has given to him. In this text, he's speaking about the Son as his servant. I'd like you to notice the uniqueness of of his relationship with God. First of all, we are told that God will uphold his servant. Now that's important because as we know from other passages, it's not so much emphasized here, the servant will be what kind of servant? A suffering servant. But God will be upholding the Son in his suffering so that he might, with faithfulness, execute his office of mediator and savior. Then we're told that he's chosen. Now again, the eternal Son of God was not chosen. He's existed forever. There never was when he was not, (laughs) as the early church debate put it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Father chose the Son as mediator to be the one to bear the work and the message of salvation for his people throughout the world. And that is unique. No one else can say that, that they were chosen to be God's mediator. And then we're told that this is one in whom my soul delights. If we're going to have the right values, if we're going to focus on the right things, then we need to know what God loves, don't we? We need to know what God delights in so that we can be kind of like him in some small way. God loves his son. When the mediator comes in the fullness of time, we see this several times again in the Gospels. When our Lord Jesus Christ is baptized by John the Baptist, the voice comes from heaven. And what does it say? Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God loves His Son. Same thing again on the Mount of Transfiguration. The voice comes, Behold, my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God loves His Son. Oh, my friends, do we love God's Son. Do we delight in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we delight in this wonderful servant of the Lord? If we don't, let's be honest about it and let's get on our knees and pray that God would open our hearts afresh, that the Holy Spirit would come upon us in a fresh way, that we might indeed delight in Him. And then... The final point about this 
uh, uniqueness of the sons, the, the servant's relationship to the father, is, the fa- is God says, I have put my spirit upon him. We know that in the Old Testament, kings were anointed, oil was poured upon them, uh, symbolic of the Holy Spirit equipping them for their office. Priests uh, were anointed with oil, uh, again, symbolic of the Holy Spirit enabling and equipping them for their ministry ahead. Here, the servant of the Lord is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And of course, you know that's what the word Messiah means. He is the anointed one. The anointed servant of God, the uniqueness of the Son. He didn't take it upon himself, as it were. He receives this ministry and this role from his Father and comes forth, as he says over and over again in the Gospels, to do his will. Well, this this unique relationship with the Father, then, with God, equips the servant to do his will. And so our second point is, I want you to behold the servant's work of justice. I have put my spirit upon him. Why? He will bring forth justice to the nations. At the end of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And verse 4, he won't quit until he has established justice on the earth. Think when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to describe him and just off the top of our heads. I don't think justice is the first word we use usually, is it? We think about the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Oh, I think we think of his mercy, rightly so, his love, his obedience, his death upon the cross and his resurrection. All true, all good. We don't usually think of justice, but especially in Isaiah. This description of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah mediator, is the one who does the work of justice throughout the world, who will establish justice in the world. It's important when we study the Bible that we don't bring our definitions of of words and put them into the mouth of God. That's a terrible thing to do. We have to let God speak for himself and understand what he means by justice. When we think of justice, I think we think of one of two things. We think of personal injustice that we've suffered that should be corrected, makes us angry. We want to fix that and get it right. Or somebody else that we know who's suffering injustice or abuse and we want to help them and get them justice. That's all legitimate to think about that. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about. Or we think perhaps about justice in a public sense. And you hear a lot about justice these days, good or bad, right or wrong, poorly defined or not. Nevertheless, remember last spring, I think it was, I was at a big high school up in Northampton, I guess it was. I was watching Brad play tennis, grandson Brad play tennis. And there were a whole bunch of high school students uh, over at this high school and there was one up on the steps, and there was a whole group of students there. And, and I, at first I couldn't understand what they were saying. And then I realized the leader was saying, what do we want? And the crowd answered, justice! And the leader would say, when do we want it? Now! And they'd go over and over. And if you watch the news, uh, you see that kind of scenario played out a lot in our country nowadays for various issues. Well... Again, I think a Christian should and can have a concern for public justice, biblically defined, but that's not what Isaiah is talking about. 
what Isaiah means by justice, letting him speak in his own words. He's talking about the good news of the coming of God's just kingdom. That's what he's talking about. If we dig a little deeper, uh, Isaiah is announcing a new and greater Davidic kingdom. Now, um, you heard this section of Isaiah preached on recently. But if we look at Isaiah chapter 9, where um, God is talking about the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, and then just after that in verse 7, notice how he is described. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The servant will bring justice because he will establish anew and in a greater way the kingdom of his father David. He will sit on David's throne. You might remember from Luke chapter 1. Isn't that what the angel said to Mary about the son she was to bear? He will be great. He will be called the son of the Most High. And God will give him the throne of his father David. That's what we're talking about when we talk about justice. Um, <clears throat> if we stay with Isaiah chapter 9, just one more verse, this just gives you uh, uh, something that you see often in Isaiah, is first of all, with justice, there will be judgment on the wicked. There will be judgment on the proud. There will be judgment on the unrepentant. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. That's judgment language. Uh, I could read a lot of other verses, and I won't because I don't have time. But you can look them up and you can see what I'm talking about. And justice also means salvation for the humble. God's deliverance for those who wait upon him. And we see this hinted at at the very end of our text in the fourth verse. The coastlands wait for his law. There you have the picture of the coastlands, literally the regions around the Mediterranean lands, but really a metaphor for worldwide, um, throughout the world, those who wait for him, those who humbly seek him, is what's being said, will be delivered and brought into this new and greater kingdom. How can justice be good news for sinners? You ever think about that? How can justice... Be good news for sin. Do any of us ever pray, Oh Lord, treat me strictly according to your justice? I don't think any of us in our right minds would pray that. We would be terrified about what might happen, and we would be right to be terrified. So, how can justice be good news for sinners? Because this kingdom of justice is going to be built upon the atonement for sin. You can read about that in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant uh, coming to make atonement for our sins. It's interesting that earlier in Isaiah chapter 6, a famous chapter where Isaiah has this magnificent vision of God in his glory, uh, enthroned in heaven, and the angels are crying, holy, 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 and Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I'm ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. 
And then the angel comes to him with a coal taken from the altar, and he says, this has touched your lips, your sin has been atoned for. Before Isaiah can even talk about justice, his sins have to be forgiven. And that's exactly what happens in that text. And that's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, will provide. He will atone for the sins of his people. That we might dwell gladly with a just God in his kingdom. Well, this then... I think answers the question how it can be then that this servant can be gentle with sinners. Well, when he atones for our sins, then the just God can be gentle with sinners. And so I want the final point I want you to meditate with me on this wonderful fact. I want you to behold the servant's gentleness with broken people. Sometimes I think nowadays the word broken is overused a bit in in describing people, but I think it fits precisely in this passage because this is precisely the kind of people, us, (laughs) that Isaiah is talking about. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make his voice heard in the street. He will come quietly. Um, I think, uh, you know, we read in Matthew that... uh, Jesus ordered them not to make him known. And I think the point was he was often saying that because there would be a misunderstanding of his mission until after the resurrection. Uh, Then it could be shouted from the housetops and people would understand what kind of Messiah he was. But notice these wonderful words in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's talking about people that the Lord Jesus encounters who are bruised. They're broken. They're like a weed in your backyard that you might want to just cut, o- cut off with your weed whacker. The Messiah is not going to do that. He's not going to beat down these broken reeds. He's going to uphold them and strengthen them is what he's saying. Not just the negative but the positive. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. There's these weak people and they have a flame of life and it's just about to go out. And Messiah is not going to snuff it out. He's going to trim the wick so that it burns even brighter. See his gentleness to broken people. What a wonderful Savior he is as he comes in the fullness of time. I don't know if you've ever wondered if you've ever doubted your salvation or if you've ever, you know, thought, how could I be a Christian the way I sin and the way I seem like I'm always making mistakes and failing? How could I be a Christian? Uh, God's surely going to give up on me. He's surely going to cast me off. He's surely done with me. And this text says he will never do that. Um, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Not only worldwide, but with you and with each one of his children. He will gently fulfill his purposes for them. I like the way our catechism puts what that purpose is. It talks about renewing the whole man after the image of God. That's sanctification. Renewing the whole person 
after the image of God. That's what God's going to do with these bruised reeds and these smoking phylaxes. He's not going to give up. He's going to continue and bring his work to completion, as Paul says in Philippians. I hope that our church reflects the character of the wonderful mediator, Jesus Christ. I hope if people look at this church, they will say, I I see that same kind of gentleness there. We're all broken in one way or another, and I do see that kind of patient gentleness, not to beat people down, but to strengthen them and to build them up. And I hope people would say, and I I see that not just once in a while, but I see people persevering, being persistent, and being gentle with their fellow sinners. May that be true. May that be reflected in us the more we know and are conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we have a fresh focus in the year ahead. May we not be so distracted as we typically and easily are. May we spend our days beholding the wonderful glory of God's servant whom he has sent for our sakes. Amen. Now we have the privilege of uh, stealing what's preached in the word with, with the Lord.